most accomplishments in life, particularly on the innovative cutting edge, they're rarely pure in the sense that you achieve absolutely everything you set out to do. But if we hadn't been ambitious, if we hadn't done it, the world would be a lesser place than it is. Welcome, friends, to Obviously the Future, the show that explores the massive trends that will shape our world in conversation with the trailblazers, the nonconformists, and the hidden experts who are building tomorrow, today. Today, we have a very special guest, Sir Michael Barber. He is a world-renowned government reform and education system expert, primarily, but He's also a LP and advisor to Avalanche, and he is a former colleague of ours. Arvin and I both worked with Michael when he was the chair of the Pearson Affordable Learning Fund, now called Pearson Ventures, where we worked with him for five plus years to invest in ed tech and education companies all over emerging markets. And then Michael and I and a couple others co-founded a company called Delivery Associates that took Michael's ideas about how you reform big education systems and big government systems and put them into action with hundreds of governments around the world. So this conversation should be wide ranging and super interesting. There's certain people you work with in life that you're like, this is a very special person and I feel privileged to have been in their presence. And Michael is by far one of those people in my life where I reflect on the lessons I learned from working with him every day. I'm obviously very into storytelling. I am not a master storyteller by any extent yet, but I can recognize greatness. And Michael is such a fantastic storyteller. You notice it in all the little details, like the way he recalls facts and gives you not just a broad stroke. He'll tell you that what Churchill was eating on the time he's telling you a story. His recall for specific details makes his stories just really stick with you. Yeah, absolutely. Every single point he makes has an anecdote from history or a book and the details and the precision really drive the point home. And you're just enthralled into this story. And I haven't, I've never met anyone who does that with such consistency and breath as Michael. Yes. So I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as we did. Thank you so much, Michael, for joining us. We're so excited to talk to you. It feels like the good old days. So the three of us were together. There's a lot of places we can start, given your long and illustrious career. But I want to start where the three of us were together, working on Pearson Ventures, where we were investing in education startups across emerging markets. And one thing that really stood out to me from that time working with the two of you is, Michael, you were an incredible chair of meetings. You had this ability. We had this investment committee of people of varying alignment to the mission of what we were trying to do and varying awareness to what we were trying to accomplish. And whenever we went into those meetings, you always were able to funnel the conversation in the right directions and get us to action items and really make those meetings efficient and extremely productive. So just want to start in a completely off the wall manner. What are your tips for how to run effective meetings? It's very flattering, Arvind. Thank you. And I do really enjoy chairing meetings, but I only really enjoy it. And this is the key message if I prepared properly. So I have to know what the items are. I have to have an idea of who will be coming from where when we get to each item. And I have to have an idea, if there is one, of where I want each item to end what the decision 
and the outcome of that debate should be. So preparation is fundamental to chairing a meeting. And then, and also thinking about the flow of the meeting, the order of the agenda and the time you've got and how you allocate it and being conscious of that as you go through the debate. Second thing is in the meeting itself, inevitably the loudest voices get heard. And the job of the chair is to make sure that all the voices are heard. And quite often in a meeting, I will bring people in who haven't signaled and say, Arvind, is there anything you want to add to this? You don't, of course you don't have to, but I like to make sure everybody's had the chance to contribute. And then the third thing is you get, of course you get diverse views. And so while you're listening as chair, thinking through where the points of agreement are and summarizing them, maybe during the debate, not just at the end, and also whether disagreements, trying to tease out whether that is fundamental or something we can just live with or whether it needs to change in what was proposed or whatever it is, but thinking all the time about how to get an outcome. And in my view, if I was chairing a meeting and it ended in a vote, I would have failed because you should be able to 99 times out of 100 find a through line to use an American term that is the route to decision. Everybody's contributed and everybody can get behind the decision, whether or not it's exactly what they wanted from the meeting. So that'd be my advice on sharing a meeting. In my book, How to Run a Government, there's a list of 11 characteristics of a good meeting, but it doesn't go into that level of depth on, a, on chairing. Do you have an example of one of the hardest meetings you ever chaired? Well, I've, the hardest meetings go back to when I was in my early 30s, chairing the Hackney Council Education Committee, where we were designing an entirely new school district. And there were very, very conflicting views, and it was really tough. But I remember literally trembling before meetings of that committee back then. One time we had to pass budget, so several hundred million pounds, and I was worried about that. But there was a debate before that about what we would now call EDI, equity, diversity, and inclusion. It was called different things back then. And that debate ran for about an hour and a half, was full of conflict, very difficult. But then the budget, we had only 12 minutes of the meeting left. So the budget, which I've been really worried about, went through without any debate whatsoever. I was delighted. I guess that worked out. <laughs> it worked out well. Not many people have passed the 300 million budget in eight minutes. That kind of reminds me, one of the... Other things that I took away from our time at Pearson Ventures was your push about the air war versus the ground war. And I think Arvin and I were very much on the ground war side of how do we find the investments? Yeah. Like, how do we get them to investment committee, get them to perform? Maybe you can talk about the importance of the air war, ground war, and why it's important to do both. Yeah, so the, the, it is important to do both. And they're not my concepts. I, I, came up with those phrases from, I think, reading a book about the Obama original 2008 presidential election campaign. And the ground war was knocking on doors, making sure you're speaking to the voters. But meantime, you're also debating this in the media increasingly now, but changed a lot since 2008. You're doing it in social media. And the people at the moment of decision are influenced at least as much by the air war, which can be very difficult to control, as well as the ground war. And the moral is the ground war, you have to do it really well. If you were preparing an investment note on a particular investment, I have to know, and you have to know that's been done really well. But even if it's been done really well, it doesn't guarantee success because people have a whole range of different impressions from a whole range of different sources. And the air war is much harder to control. So 
in, in any venture, whether you're setting up a school or investing in a chain of schools or whatever it might be, being really conscious of the communication strategy that you have alongside your ground war is really important. What are the messages you want people to remember about your whatever it is uh, and constantly keep repeating them? And when you come under attack, don't get defensive. Keep pushing your own message out. So if it's a, a, an investment that Avalanche is making in some new product, what's the product for? How's it going to change the world? Who will it influence? Why is it important? Why is it significant compared to all the rest of it? What's the sort of moral purpose of it as well as the business case for it? Speaking of this concept of, you know, actually accomplishing things, I want to ask you a question that I've been pondering. For Pearson Ventures, when you look back at what we sought out to do and where things ended up, do you think that is an example of accomplishment or do you think we fell short in that effort there? Because on one hand, I'll just, from my side, on one hand, you have something that we were doing was truly transformative. It was something wildly new and bold for the company and for what we were trying to do for education. At the same time, in terms of financial returns, in terms of Pearson eventually shutting down this effort, there's an element to the actual finish line that seems elusive in some respects. So I'm wondering how you reflect, given time and distance, on that chapter of your journey. Yes, the first thing to say is it was a huge pleasure to work with you and Caitlin and Hans others. So I love being part of that. And it was, as you say, it was very radical, very innovative, very much on the edge. And I think we were if you like, kicking open an education space. Nobody really got systematically into it until we did that. And I think that the innovation was important and the idea was established so that we won positive outcome. The second point is obviously after our time, Pearson didn't continue with that. And I think there are two reasons for that. One is I don't think the core of the company, which towards the end of our time there went into quite difficult times, could see how this, how Pearson Ventures should be prioritized. We tried to make the case and I think it was a mistake, but the CFO and the CEO are always the, really where the pressure is when a company comes in into financial difficulties and the share prices is under pressure. And that from their perspective, they couldn't see the significance of what we were doing. Secondly, because we were taking some risks, we ourselves kept the agenda very much to ourselves and we the air war inside of Pearson we didn't go out of our way to try and persuade people and bring people on board because we thought they wouldn't like it we might have been right and so the message of what we were doing and why we we're doing had really landed at the board level or CFO CEO role they saw it as a, a kind of wild experiment on the edge even though in fact our financial returns were really rather good and compared well to a number of other Pearson investments so our track record was good but we kept it largely, but not totally to ourselves, because of course we had to report in. But then the other insignificance, I would say this, although the fund didn't continue inside of Pearson, the changes we made, say Spark Schools in South Africa, uh, or the school chain in the Philippines that was later sold for a very significant sum of money. So some of the actual on the ground innovation that we helped to fund and didn't just fund it, we prompted it, we chased up. You, you two were on boards chasing these people. Some of the in investments we made in India, the, we really helped the companies we're investing in do things better than they would otherwise have done. So to me, the legacy is in the children in Spark schools in South Africa or the learners in India who 
got into IITs and wouldn't otherwise have done the learners in the Philippines who got into college and wouldn't otherwise have done. So, so that, I think there's a significant legacy there. There's a legacy in our collective learning. And, and I think the field has opened up more, partly as a result of what we did. I do consider it an accomplishment. I don't, it's, not a, it's not a pure accomplishment. I can see how we might have done more if, if we'd been able to stay longer or if, if somebody else had taken it on. It might have done more and better, but yes, it was an accomplishment. But most accomplishments in life, particularly on the innovative cutting edge, they're rarely pure in the sense that you achieve absolutely everything you set out to do. But if we hadn't been ambitious, if we hadn't done it, the world would be a lesser place than it is. Yeah, this conversation yeah. makes me think about the the faded Wired article, Pearson's quest to cover the planet and company-run schools. It was both like good and devastating at the same time because it captured the scale of the ambition and what could truly be accomplished in a really revolutionary way, but had a tone of scare tactics and fear-mongering and... Yeah, sinister tone. Tired narrative of the private sector. But I definitely feel the avalanche is an outgrowth of obviously the time that we spent at Pearson together and all the so many things that that we learned along the way. And it's amazing how we were pioneering ed tech and actually just investing in emerging markets when no one was investing in emerging markets. Like we were in Brazil and India, Indonesia, Philippines, and now there's like billions and billions of dollars goes into these markets. And there were almost no VCs on the ground there. So we were pioneering both you know, from an education point of view, but even just from investing in markets that people saw as backwater places for yes. startups and investment. Yes. So I, I do. I think that I think that's probably the major accomplishment, apart from the learning opportunities that were created in all the places you just mentioned. And I do think that's right. And I think it's great that the Avalanche VC is, has been built independently of a large company now, because you don't have to fit in with a set of preconceived notions. We were an internal challenge, almost by definition to Pearson. And it's quite difficult on both sides of that to be the challenger and to be the challenged. And getting those relationships right. So whereas now you're independent of that and you can, yeah. you've raised your money, you can invest in things on the basis of the impact they're going to have, the degree of innovation, all the rest of it. So I do, I think that we have built on that. And it, as you're right, that there's a growing trend there. And also to your point around, could we have done more on the air war within Pearson, even though Caitlin's been building this independently within Avalanche, it, there's still an air war that needs to be focused on because the main criticism is, could we have done more to create the, as you always say, irreversibility? Can we create this so that it's a train that cannot stop no matter what happens? So, and so yeah. I think similarly for Caitlin, can even in this mindset, how do you create the right messages, cr- interact with the stakeholders to create that level of irreversibility? Yes. In um, my book, Accomplishment, which I know we're coming to, um, I talk about the communication strategy and there are different options. And I set out two paradigms for that using literature as my case of Moby Dick. Okay. Very big fat novel. And the main character is the terrifying Captain Ahab, right? He first appears in my edition of it on page 217. You've read 217 pages before the main character even appears on a page. So that's one option and quite a good option. And it might, but it might be that you want to just make a lot of difference and then say, look, now here's our communication. So you do it almost under the radar and then you suddenly appear 
on page 217. Or if you take Great Expectations written by Charles Dickens roughly around the same time as Melville, Moby Dick, in, in Great Expectations, the two key characters, Pip and Magwitch, appear on page one and two in a terrifying scene in a graveyard by the Thames. So he just goes for, here are my characters. Right, now you're going to see what happens to them. Whereas Melville builds it up and then you're into So when you're doing a strategy, you can do the Melville option or the Ahab option. If you do the second one, it helps to galvanize things, but it also puts you under pressure because you've made a big announcement before you've done anything. So when people say two months later, they say, well, there's that huge announcement, but nothing's happened. Whereas with the second one, you can say, we've already done this and look. So it's a question of choice, but I do think for a fund like Avalanche, oh, and indeed for some of the businesses you're investing in, being clear about what your hair war strategy, your communication strategy is important. One of the things that those two stories make me think of is that, Michael, you and I are exited founders of a business that we built together, Delivery Associates. And that's one of the experiences that I call back on a lot when I work with founders and invest in businesses. And one of the key things that impressed about me about Delivery Associates is the 10-year journey from founding to bringing on the private equity partner. And that you have an inflection point probably like year five or six when things started to compound or grow. But I impress upon people that for those first five years, it wasn't as clear it was going to succeed or it wasn't going to succeed in like the way that it massively has. When I think about building Avalanche, I gravitate more towards the sort of strategy of going bigger later, just knowing that if you're going to accomplish something big, you're, you need those early years to iterate on all the little things and the team and your value prop and testing all of the messages before you hit that inflection point and that you can't rush that period. I completely agree with that. And that's, uh, by the way, I'm not quite an exited shareholder. I'm a partially exited shareholder, but the, but the, it is absolutely right. And I think some people in some startups are, because they've read some spectacular story or some entrepreneurs have written some spectacular book, they get impatient. They think it's all going to happen in year three or something. And that ability to keep at it, to believe in what you're trying to do, to learn from your experience in a very explicit way, and then invest that learning back into the business. This is fundamentally important. And I think for our business, being completely independent was really good, but you have to learn. You go through various big challenges on the way, but the way in which the founders stick together through those moments and use them as learning opportunities is fundamentally important. And if it takes six, seven, eight years, that's not slow. That's just what it takes. And in my book, I interviewed James Dyson, the British entrepreneur who sells vacuum cleaners and hand dryers in public toilets that actually dry your hands. Really clever things like that. And lots of other electronic goods. His first vacuum cleaner, he built in a shed in the back garden. It took him five years and he had, I think, 5,127 prototypes before he had one ready to put on the market. That's an extreme example of somebody absolutely convinced that he can beat the competition, but he's willing to spend five years doing it. Yes, that's incredible. Caitlin seems has been taking more of the Ahab route. I'm trying to go the PIP route and where I'm literally announcing that I'm starting a school before I've done anything. And part of my strategy for doing so is 
hopefully attracting more like-minded people to the mission. And the other element that came through in accomplishment is you were talking about how you don't do things to be remembered by history, but if you do, make sure you write it the first version yourself. <laughs> and that's, that struck me because one of the things that I'm really curious to, to want more of is I feel like we always ask retrospectively what happened in this journey. And you talk about your time at delivery, your time at Pearson, all this. And our memories get shaped over time. The stories, how we connect those dots are different. There's a different experience to shaping the narrative, hearing the history in the moment while it's live. There's a different perspective that I think can be lost over time when you ask a successful person how they succeeded there's some element that may get lost just because of how their memory connects things and how they try to shape a narrative and the way in which human minds work. Yes, that, that is entirely true. And I do think this is an important point. And by the way, before I comment on that, when you set up a school like you're doing, at some point you do have to, you can't rely purely on the Ahab route because you've got to tell the parents that your school is there and attract yes. some students. And those founding families are really important to you because they're putting faith in an idea. They can't come and see your school. Absolutely. So the way you think about that, to me, is really crucial. My friend who, whose school you visited in the East End of London, Peter Hyman, it was called School 21, but then it became a chain with called Big Education. The biggest moment of risk was would the parents actually send their children the first day that school opened its doors and how are we going to build them as allies, as supporters, and obviously... His whole message about we do good work every day has to be turned into reality every day. So that, that's an important part with some innovations. But on the history point, I always say this, and I'm sure I've said it to each of you at different times. If you're going to do an innovation and if you want to remember and maybe one day write about it, you need to write a journal, a diary. And I did that all through my time in working in number 10 Downing Street. I didn't do it all the time at Pearson, but I do it in phase. And right now I'm... I'm chairman of one of England's leading cricket clubs. We just run a, won a big trophy, first trophy for 18 years. And I am writing a diary of that because I know at some point I'll forget. I'm not saying, by the way, I'm responsible for us winning the trophy. That was the players that did that. I do think writing a diary really helps you remember. And if you want to write about it later, it's crucial. And if you go to famous people, Churchill in the war, who people forget this. He, as soon as he'd been lost his job as prime minister, he started writing the history of the second world war, which took him six years, six volumes. He won the Nobel prize for literature. That's extraordinary. I and mean, it's a beautiful book, but he knew all through the war that he would one day write. Them. And so when he had a meeting, let's say one of his ministers comes to a meeting, Churchill would say, I'd like you to do this. And the minister would say, that's fine. And then the next day they get a note saying, I'd like you to do this. And they think, why did I get a note? I understood perfectly well. And he wrote the note. Churchill wrote the note in the night and then stored it in his, in his home, in a cellar, so that when he wanted to write the history of the second war, he had all the notes he needed. He could just string them together. If you're, if you're conscious of history, that's what you do. You have some way of making the record as you go because you know that however good your memory, you'll juggle things. You'll forget things that were painful. You'll get things in the wrong order, even if you've got a really fantastic memory. You think that's a bit different now that there's so much of what we do is is recorded. So email, yes. WhatsApps, text, Zooms, like e yeah. you can now, it's almost information overload. Yes. Yeah, it's true. It, it might be that you don't have to write a diary, but you might want to find a way of efficiently electronically filing the emails that matter to you because mm -hmm. it'll save you an awful lot of time five years later when you're looking at those and maybe you're working for a different organization. 
and they were internal and they're behind a firewall wading through the, uh, the sort of digital ocean can be very demanding. Speaking of accomplishment, how do you define accomplishment? And you spent the book describing a lot of the accomplishments of others, but what do you think is your greatest accomplishment? Should, should I start with the, how do I define accomplishment? So I think it's making a visible, significant change in the world that makes the world a better place. So you're going to make a big change in the world. Often it might be, you might be doing it for the first time or scale for the first time. And that, that leads you into the methodology of accomplishing things, which is what the book's about. And what I wanted to show in accomplishment is that there's a pattern to it that applies in government, in business, in sport, in art, and in pretty much any field you want to turn to. And the more I see of life, the more I believe that case, I'm not saying it's the only way you can accomplish things, but that pattern, if applied systematically and rigorously, will lead to accomplishments, not necessarily perfect, not necessarily everything you set up to do, but the ambition, even if you fall just short of it, will help you get to a significantly improved outcome. In my own terms, I was thrilled to bits when I cycled the length of the West coast of Scotland, England, and Wales home for my 60th birthday and climbed the highest mountains in England, Scotland, and Wales on the way. So on a very personal level, that was a very rewarding experience, which I do describe in the book. And while I'm on biking, doing a 10 mile time trial in under 25 minutes, which took three or four years of work was spectacular. And I had, as you'll see in the book, unexpected help from Team Sky, the professional cycling team. But, but that's so on a very personal level, those kinds of things. In terms of my, my working career, I look back on two things as the most significant. One is the national literacy and numeracy strategy in primary schools in England between 1997 and 2001, which I was responsible for and had sleepless nights over and which have since been built on by successive governments. And anybody who saw the recent Pearl's results would have seen that England is fourth in the world now, and it's the highest performing country in Europe, the highest performing country in the West. That's a big thing that I feel very proud of having started. And that took, that was my first learning about how to accomplish things at scale across the whole system. When the Queen of England back in the 16th century, Mary lost Calais, the last possession that Britain had on the continent. It, people used to say she died with Calais written on her heart and I will die with the national literacy and numeracy strategies written on my heart, but as a success rather than a failure. And then the other thing is designing for Prime Minister Blair an approach to delivery that would enable him to get his domestic policy agenda done, even though he had many distractions in foreign policy, including 9-11, war in Iraq and so on. And that approach as we all know, has now been adopted and refined and in some cases improved by countries all over the world. I mean, those, both of those accomplishments are now 20 years old and you've built significantly on top of them. Do you think that there's like an age where you need to accomplish things by or an optimal age where it's like you've learned enough, you have enough experience? Yeah, I think, I don't think there's a particular age either of youth or age necessarily that applies. You have to make the most of youth or age. So age, you've got experience and so on, but the risk is you get ground down, you get tired and or, and, or you get cynical. And so you stop believing you can make a big difference. And youth, the naivety can be a good thing for a while, but you have to keep learning and you need to find people who can help guide you through that. So I don't think there's a particular age. When I start on the national literacy 
program in May 1997. I was 41 years old, so not particularly young compared to some of the people that, that you're investing in. And I'd had lots of bits in my career when I thought it was stalling and not going anywhere. And I was 45 when I started on the delivery stuff for Blair, that they were obviously connected. But I don't think there's an age where you should stop trying to accomplish great things. I was 63 when I did my 10-mile time trial. So you can keep at it. It's a question of, of mindset. Do you know this term, the GOAT, greatest of all time? Yes. Yes. People consider Mike, Michael Jordan as the original GOAT of basketball. What do you think defines greatness versus accomplishment? How are those two like distinct concepts? And how, what do you have to build to achieve greatness? So accomplishment would be a significant part of greatness, but true greatness and goat as in Michael Jordan, you have to demonstrably have not just accomplished things, but repeatedly accomplished things at the very highest level. You can't be the greatest of all time in one basketball, ice hockey, football match. I think a set of accomplishments could make you the greatest of all time but they'd have to be a very high standard and they'd have to be sustained. And you'd have to be able to make the argument that nobody in history has done this well before. I think we human beings like our greatest of all time, not just to be brilliant at whatever they do, whether it's, whether it's sport, but to be in some way an inspiring human being above and beyond the pure sport. We don't think the greatest of all time is defined by how much money they made. The fact that a golfer had made X million pounds more than an American footballer wouldn't necessarily make the golfer a better sports person. For true greatness, greatest of all time, you want tremendous track record in sport and something about the human being that we look up to and admire and respect. And that brings you back to the values of that person as well as the, their accomplishments, which again, I'll go back in the book. So I, I talk about the, the great Czech runner who won two gold medals in London in 1948 Olympics and then won three gold medals in Helsinki, Emil Zatopek. And at the time, you could certainly argue he was the greatest of all time, but he was an outstanding human being who thought about the relationships he had with runners from the other side of the Iron Curtain, who wouldn't allow the Czechoslovak time government ban one of his team colleagues from traveling to Helsinki. They wanted to ban him because the, this guy came from a family that was suspect in Czechoslovakian communist terms. And Beck said, if he doesn't come, I'm not going either. That's one of the reasons Muhammad Ali is often talked about as the greatest sports person of all time, because he stood for something. Whether or not you agree with what he stood for, he stood for it with, with courage and determination and then came back and won the world title again. The further answer to Caitlin's point, there needs to be something about the human being as well as about the accomplishment. So. Wanted to switch gears to the original Avalanche. What are your thoughts on when you wrote that with Caitlin and Saad? What do you think you've got right? What do you think you've got wrong? Where do you see the landscape today? I think in 10 years, you have time to think, to watch it go through phases. But I think right now, it's never been more accurate. The three of us had a lot of fun writing that and we were pushing all the boundaries. And at the time... Caitlin, remember the launch, people saying, no, it's not really an avalanche, it's coming, but it's a great piece of provocation. We were happy with that. But actually, the avalanche metaphor came from a historian, a British historian called Norman Davis, who was talking about how historical change occurs. And he says, you look at an av a snowfield on a hillside and it looks very static and it was there last year, it was there the year before, and it'll still be there next year. But underneath, under the ground, 
things are melting, things are changing. You can't see that. And then eventually, at some point, unpredictable point, the avalanche happens. I think the avalanche is happening now. So we were predicting these things. But if you look at what's happening with technology and universities in England right now, there are academic staff on strike. And one of the things they're doing in striking is not marking students' work in exams at the end of their degree. Now, I personally think that is, to put it mildly, shooting yourself in the foot, but that's their choice. But that that shows that the world is changing. It's students who are paying money to go to university. So the students don't choose you. You are going to struggle. And if you don't mark their work, you're not likely to attract them in the future. You're not likely to attract persuade their parents that this is something worth investing in. So that's just one example. Then the technology is changing dramatically the way we're teaching and learning operates. Avalanche VC is investing in a, a number of innovations in this field. So there's lots of exciting things happening, but the old world has gone. And, and you can see it happening right now, right around the world. You look at the struggles countries are having about what to do with how many foreign students, how to fund universities. How does attracting foreign students relate to immigration policy? These are really complicated, difficult things because the university system has globalized. The technology to teach and learn has changed and has globalized. And the technology to mark exams, by the way, is also radically changing. It's a long answer. I think the avalanche has come and people haven't understood the scale of change that they're going to face. I totally agree. I think we're still in like early innings of the entrepreneurs and founders still building the future of what the ecosystem of more choice and competition will look like for higher ed. People's mindsets and employers, it's such a deeply encultured, like cultural embedded mentality of going to university, having that be this step, but it's chipping away faster and you can see that momentum happening. And the British government now is taking through a reform that will come into place in 2025, where the funding that supports students, the treasury pays for your course, and then you pay it back later when you're earning above £25,000 a year, like an extra payment on your taxes at that point. But they're taking through a a program now, which I think is really good, which says you don't have to take that for 9000 a year for three years. You can take it in modules over a period of time, so through a, a longer period of time, in chunks. The universities think that everybody will carry on doing what they're doing now and still come for three years, but some of them won't. Yeah. They'll do different things. Lots of top universities, including Exeter University, where I'm chancellor, we're doing lots of degree apprenticeships where you work for PricewaterhouseCoopers or some engineering company and you do your work some other week and you do your apprenticeship learning in that same field for the rest of the week. You get your degree over six years. You don't get any student debt. You get paid while you're doing it. And Of those students in Exeter, 91% of them complete their course over the six-year period. This is really exciting. So there's a whole lot of new models happening even before our very eyes, but people haven't clocked the significance of that for the change in the system. The most important thing for young people is like, how do they gain skills that they can get a job and be employed? And any academic establishment still holding on to these romantic notions of research and knowledge transfer and is really huge disconnect from the consumer demand aspect of the teaching and learning. Yeah, and if they really believe, Nicola Dandridge, who's just written a nice pamphlet, if you really believe that research informs teaching, you need to show how that is explicit and how the student can really see that rather than use it as a label that you don't really mean.
I want to end with a little lightning round. So some, a couple quick questions for you. So we usually do hot takes. So you have the avalanche paper 10 years ago. What today? Give me a hot take for 10 years from now. Something, it doesn't have to be education, wherever you're thinking. What do you think is obviously the future that's coming in the next 10 years? It depends how optimistic you're feeling. I feel AI is going to make a transformative impact one way or another. I would love to think that in 10 years, we, the human race, will have worked out the ethics of managing that. And I don't think we're there yet. There are some clever people working on it, but it's really significant. The second thing is, I think in sport, we've got nutrition, physical training, tactical training, technical training, all of these things to a very high standard. The breakthroughs in sport are going to be mental. They're going to be the psychology of how you win, how you deal with defeat, of how you come from a setback and perform at a very high level. And there's a lot of people already showing that, but that, that, that's where the room for breakthroughs in sport. So I think in 10 years, we'll see records in athletics being broken consistently, but it will be through the mind. It's incredible to see these young tennis players, 18, the first thing after their coach is they hire a psychologist that's on their staff. And it's very, that that's become such a crucial element. All right. Last one, Caitlin's list, my younger self. She has a list of books that she would recommend to her younger self. One of my favorite things that we used to do was share our reading lists, Michael. So I know you're an avid reader. By the way, speaking of your AI point, AI and ethics, I have a book recommendation for you. Okay. Uh, but tell me, what is your book that you recommend, you would recommend to your younger self? I wish at university I'd read some of the history books I've been reading for the last 40 years because I'd have done better essays and I've understood some of the stuff I studied back then much better. I would certainly recommend the book that's very famous in America, bestseller. I read it about 10 years ago, Team of Rivals, that President Obama liked about Lincoln and the way he selected his cabinet, because I did that as my special subject at university, and I'd have done a much better job if I'd had that book available. Doris Kearns Goodwin is the author. So that's one book I'd definitely recommend. The other books that I wish I'd read when I was much younger, one of them would be the Brothers Karamazov by Dostoevsky, which I think is one of the greatest novels ever written. It's quite Beautiful. a fat novel, yes. but it is a quite staggeringly yes. good novel. I didn't read that till yes. I was in my 40s. So I'd definitely recommend that. And last thing, anything to plug? Where do people find you if they want more? I have a personal website. I have a Twitter feed at MichaelBarber9. And if you want to buy my book, Accomplishment, it's available from Amazon, Penguin Books. Yes, let's exactly. go. Fantastic book. It really is. I'm using it right now in the process of my school. It really is very practical guide and appreciate it. And as a Twitter follow, if you're interested in trains running, as well as deep thoughts on the future of education, you get it, it, and all, everything in between. It's a, a great oh, yeah. follow for Twitter. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And some nice pictures of the Devon countryside. That's great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank you Thank so much, Michael, for joining us. This is fantastic. Thank you. It's been a pleasure, Arvind and Caitlin. Always a pleasure to talk to you and very heartwarming as well as fascinating. Thank you very much.